Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our Young Adult Services, or at our General Services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. All right, grab a Bible, and what book of the Bible are we studying? The Book of Romans. All right, so if you're new... What's up? My name is Matt. Uh, just a dude that gets to hang out with you guys. And um, we're in the book of Romans. I think we're in week 25 or 26. What is it? 26. Okay, we're in week 26. So if you're new, uh, you got a lot of homework to do. Uh, uh, but don't worry. There's 25, 26 now. Uh, podcast that you can listen to on our, uh, on our you can go on Spotify, uh, Apple Music, uh, and where else they have podcasts. Um, just type in, I think it's Seacoast Grace Young Adults. And then you can get all of our podcasts. All right, so we are in uh, Romans chapter 10 today. Um, we're going to be finishing up Romans chapter 10 today. And um, before we hop into where I want to go with you guys today, though, I'm going to give you guys a question. Here's your question, all right? I think I got a slide for the question. Do I have a slide for the question? Who brought you to faith or at least to Seacoast? Now, look, I realize that in a group this large, not everyone is probably a believer in Jesus. Um, so for those of you guys that aren't followers of Jesus, so amped you're here, I guess it's who brought you, who brought you here? Like, why do you think you're here? Whatever it is, all right? So who brought you to faith or who brought you to Seacoast? I'm going to give you guys maybe like two or three minutes for this question. Turn, discuss. Ready, say, go. All right, guys, bring it on up, bring it on up. All right, all right, so uh, I'll start with, uh, I'll, do, I'll do both these questions. All right, who brought me to faith? All right, so um, it all started with me, uh, my mom, tricking me on a Tuesday night. She said, hey, Matt, do you want to, uh, this, by the way, is in the year 2009 or 2010, so a little bit ago, right? And uh, she goes, hey, Matt, you want to watch a, wanna watch a movie uh, on, our, on, our, on our big, you know, our, our brand new I think it was a plasma, so you can see how long ago that was. This big plasma TV we just got, and uh, the surround sound system that, that my dad just bought. And I was like, yeah, for sure, let's watch a movie. So my mom tricked me, and she put on Passion of the Christ. And uh, raise your hand if you've ever seen Passion of the Christ before. All right, if you haven't, you're going to go home tonight and watch Passion of the Christ. So uh, it's an incredible movie, by the way. So anyways, um, the next 16 hours, or however long this movie is, right, I feel like it's three days long. So I just roller coaster of emotions, right? Like I'm, I'm like laughing and rejoicing and then I'm like weeping, right? So this is a crazy movie, right? And um, they do such a phenomenal job in the movie. At the end of the movie, after all these roller coasters of an emotion, she turns over to me and she goes, hey, um, do you know the actor who plays Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, you know, Jim, Jim Caviezel. He's like my idol now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I want to meet one person on planet and it's Jim Caviezel now. And she goes, he's actually speaking at Cottonwood, which is a church right over here. Um, tomorrow night. Do you want to go? I was like, Jesus is going to be like in California, like, like Yeshua, you know? So I was, I was like, for sure we're going, right? And so I went Wednesday night, seven o'clock, they had this program and uh, they do worship. And then he comes up and he shares his testimony, right? Oh my gosh. All right. So you're going to do two things tonight. Number one, you're going to go watch Passion of the Christ and weep. And then you're going to go listen to his testimony. He's type in Jim Caviezel or dude that plays Jesus and Passion of the Christ story. It's unbelievable, right? So like while he's on the cross, he actually gets electrocuted, like legit a lightning bolt hit him. Um, his shoulder dislocates. He's get brought to the near part of death, and he shares a story of why he thinks God, God allowed that so that he could actually really experience suffering so that the audience, us, could actually see what Jesus himself went through. It's an incredible story, right? It's like such a phenomenal story, and at the end of it, um, after the end of his testimony, he clearly explains the gospel, and there's this altar call. 
So everyone's, you know, like, you know, if you've been a part of an altar call before, everyone's closing their eyes, you know, but no one's really closing their eyes. <laughs> everyone's counting like one, two, three, you know. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down, right? And the next thing I know is I'm standing up. And I open my eyes and I'm standing up. And like legit don't remember doing this, but I just remember I'm standing. I'm, I'm standing up, right? And I happen to be like the only person in my section standing up. And I'm like, frick. And uh, for some reason they put a light on me. I'm like, everyone's eyes are supposed to be closed. I'm like, oh. no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and I'm like, what's going on right now? Like, you know? And, uh, and he's like, I see you. And I was like, yeah, you do. Uh, <laughs> and so like I remember going home that day. And, and to be honest with you, Although I think I gave my life to God at that moment, uh, my life didn't change immediately, even though I believe my eternity did. I was still wilding out and partying and doing a bunch of stupid things on Friday and Saturday night, X, Y, or Z, right? However, a couple of months later, I had a group of friends um, that I know were praying for me and that were attending this church, uh, their Wednesday night program, which is for high school students, which we still have, obviously. And so uh, they, they, they came with me one uh, lunch period, and they said, hey, Matt, do you want to come to Seacoast? And I think my first thing was like, are there cute girls there? Or something. I forgot what I said, but something probably stupid like that, right? And, uh, and so I ended up coming. I get here, and my buddies, there was three of them, couldn't show up that night. So I'm sitting there in my truck in the parking lot, and then I hear this music start. I'm like, what's that? And uh, it's worship. And so I walk in the back. I sit right back over there, and there's just a chair. I come in during worship, um, and I just sit down, right? And uh, then uh, this guy named Cody, who's now my brother-in-law, crazy, and he comes up and, and gives a mediocre message, and I'm playing, he gives a great message, uh, and, and here's where I learned, like, the part two of the gospel message, which is this. You can come as you are, but not stay as you are. You can come as you are, but not stay as you are. In other words, now that you're a part of God's family, act like you're a part of God's family now, right? See, the purpose of me sharing really these stories with you is to communicate to you that both of these instances, the gospel was verbally articulated and shared with me. Someone took the time to share the message of Jesus, and it changed my life entirely. And so as we hop back into Romans chapter 10 today, this is what Paul is really trying to get us to see, that if we want people to come to the Lord, come to a relationship with, it, with Jesus, we have to do our job at verbally sharing our faith with all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is and who he is. And so tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share in uh, our section of scripture today a little differently than I think I've been teaching it in the last few weeks. I want to share uh, maybe more stories of why I love the section of scripture that we're going to journey through today, and why I hold them near and dear to my heart, and some learnings that I've, I've gone through, a, a tragic event in my life, and why these um, verses motivate me, what I've learned going through this tragic moment. And so tonight is going to be like probably a little bit of less Greek, a uh, little less big words, and um, probably even a little less context than I've shared each and every single week. And that's because I think every single week I've shared tons of Greek and tons of context. All that stuff's important. However, today our context doesn't change. Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, Paul is speaking to the very same audience. To bring us back onto the same page, Paul is still teaching to the Jewish people about the problem and predicament that they are in by rejecting Jesus Christ. Truly, the Jews are without an excuse for rejecting Jesus, but Paul in this section of uh, verses in Scripture answers a few potential excuses that the Jewish people might give. It's kind of a hypothetical that Paul writes. He's like, okay, I'm writing this, and he's like, I imagine all of these Jewish people are going to have these objections. I'm going to write to their objections. Kind of like a, a frequently asked in questions thing. So it's like people already know the questions people are going to ask. I'm going to answer them already without even, anyone actually asking them. That's what's happening in our verses today, which is Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, or 14 through 21, by the way. So a few possible excuses that the Jews could offer for rejecting Jesus. The first was this. Well, we, uh, we never heard the gospel. I mean, we never really heard the gospel or didn't know how God himself was going to reveal himself, which is silly and stupid, and I'll explain in a second. And number two would be that although the Jews heard the gospels, the message of Jesus Christ, or at least the message of God, they did not understand it. 
They didn't see how God was connecting the dots of the Old Testament and the message that Jesus brought in the New Testament. That's also stupid. Let me tell you why. So if you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, you're going to find that the count of God creating the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and then you're going to hop to Genesis chapter 3, and you're going to see this thing called sin infecting the human story. If you know the story of Genesis chapter 3, you'll know that God promises that he, out of this lineage, family lineage, one day will send one man that will crush the head of the snake in the garden, which is metaphoric for him defeating Satan or evil. There are some curses, if you know, in Genesis chapter 3, I think verse 17 and onward, that happen between man and woman. The woman, well, now it's painful in childbirth. And for men, it's that they will work all of the days of their lives and the ground will produce thorns and thistles. If you fast forward to the person who is actually going to defeat death and evil and Satan himself, it's Jesus. What is Jesus, what type of crown does he get placed and nailed upon his head? A crown of thorns and thistles, right? All throughout the Old Testament, God is trying to weave in this story. That the same God that was in the Old Testament is the same person, Jesus, that's in the New Testament. So you go forward a little bit in the story of Noah. If you know the story of Noah, he built this massive boat, this Titanic of a boat, right? It doesn't sink, by the way. Um, the ingenuity is a little better back then, I guess. And so builds this massive boat, spends 100 or so years building it. And uh, this is also metaphoric. I mean, I believe this story actually happened, but it's also metaphoric. The, the people on the ark are saved from God's judgment. What does Jesus promise us in the New Testament? Romans chapter 10, verse 13. We went over it last week. We'll read over it this week. For whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. So if by faith you can board an ark and you can be safe from the judgment waters of God. Or you go a little bit, a little, uh, few chapters later in the book of Exodus, and you meet, um, uh, or even before Exodus, you, read, you meet, uh, let's do Abraham. You guys know the story of Abraham, father Abraham, yada, yada. Right, so if you know the story and you know Abraham, then you know that uh, he was asked to trust in God by taking his firstborn son, Isaac, bringing him all the way up to a mountain and to plunge a knife on an altar to kill him. What happens just before he plunges a knife into his son? God says, I'm not going to let you kill my son. One day I'll send my son to die for you guys. And he provides a lamb. And so he sacrifices the lamb. Now you go a few chapters later into the book of Exodus now, and you have Moses. Moses is an interesting man, but on the very last plague that God is to inflict upon Egypt, it was to bring an angel of death and to kill all the firstborn children. If they didn't kill a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorframe so that the angel of death would pass over, which is why it's called Passover, the Jewish families. So what's the message for you and I today? In the book of John, Jesus, more than any other Bible, uh, Bible book, is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then you even go to like Jesus' last night, Thursday, before he's about to be crucified on Friday, and he has this whole dinner spread, if you know what it is, and it's where he institutes something called communion. Now, traditionally, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, at the communion table, they would have a handful of elements. One was wine, for sure, the other was bread, and the other one was literal lamb meat. As a memor- as to, to, uh, uh, all of these have symbolic references, obviously, to remember what God did through the story of Moses passing over them. And then by faith, you can, God's judgment can also pass over you. So what ends up happening is uh, he instituted thing called communion. And notice what's not at the table. You have the bread and you have the wine, but you have no lamb. Why? Because the lamb of God was at the table. All throughout, God is trying to say, look, I've written the Old Testament. I'm about to write the New Testament. I I am in the person of Jesus Christ. You have no excuse. 
not to say that you didn't know or that you don't understand because I have been for centuries now uh, using human authors to write books about who I am, speaking through prophets. Then I've literally showed up God in a bod and you are still rejecting me. And so Paul's point is that your unbelief, the Jewish people's unbelief was not out of ignorance. By the way, the same as you and I today, we have greater revelation and understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospels are about after the last 2,000 years of, of preaching than they did for sure. And so their rejection of Jesus was not out of ignorance. It was out of rebellion against God and against his word. And so with that in the back of your minds, that sets us up where we're headed today. Go with me to Romans chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 13, which brings us to last week, gives us some context. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an incredible promise, but it's also, I need you to see this, it's also a painful reality. The promise is that everyone who calls out to Jesus will be saved, but the painful reality is not everyone you know, not everyone in this room will call out to him as Lord. See, what this also means is that there also has to be an individual personal conviction to give your life over to him. It is not enough to hear someone read from God's word. It is not enough to listen to a pastor preach. In fact, some people ignorantly think that if they go to church regularly and they hear the gospel by a pastor speaking that they're going to be saved. That idea is found nowhere in scripture, but that's what we have deduced Christianity to be. I got good church attendance. I take communion every four times a year or whatever. I went to Easter and Christmas. I'm good. See, what's found in scripture is the act of submission and personal conviction to call out to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Go with me to verse 14 to 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, this is where we get to participate in bringing a living Jesus to a dying world. This is our job. Someone has to preach the word of God. And by the way, this isn't just a a, a job for somebody like me. This is a job for every follower of Jesus Christ. You'll hear me say later that every member of God's family is a minister because you have a personal ministry. Everyone, each one of you guys have spheres of influence of people. But this is our part in this really incredible process. And it is a process. I've been doing um, student ministries here for over a decade. And I've said before in that time, I don't know, close to 10,000, if not more people have walked through these doors and sat in these chairs, the same ones you're sitting in right now, which these couches are disgusting. No, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> And they've, these students have either heard, you know, they've, they've sat under my teaching or someone else's teaching, right? Do you know how many of them have stuck around? Or rather, do you know how many of them into their high school and college years have faithfully pursued the Lord? Like probably less than 10%. Granted, I was their youth pastor, so they started as a negative, but there's only a handful, right? And I used to be super disheartened by this reality, thinking that if I didn't see an immediate change happen in their life within the time maybe that they were in my ministry that all the time that I spent with them, all the time I invested in them, whatever it was, was spent, and it was, it was for nothing. But over the years, as I've been doing this for a little bit now, I've gotten to see some old students come back and share with me how, they've, how they're now following the Lord. I mean, just a few people maybe in this room, right? So um, Logan, he was up here uh, leading worship, right? He's one of them. Um, RJ, uh, we're still working on him. No, I'm playing. RJ, uh, Right? So, like, he came up to me when we were, if you've been around here for a while, there was this massive tent that we had outside, and we called it Tent Revival, and it was during the whole COVID thing. And, uh, and he came up to me, he's like, do you remember me? I was like, do I remember you? I was like, dude, I'm, I'm amped you're here, you know? And there's a handful of you guys that fit in that category. You guys grew up in my youth group, and you're faithfully pursuing the Lord now. What I've learned is that the process of bringing someone to the Lord is just that. It's an actual process. You may not be the person that gets your friends and family across the finish line, but you may be the person that at least gets them in the race. 
at least, at least introduces them to the idea of a God that is compassionate, loving, just, and perfect and holy. That you and I are born separate from him, but because of Jesus, you can be reconciled to him. You may not be the person that gets them to cross the finish line into heaven, but you may be the person that at least gets them in the race to get to the finish line. One pastor I listen to often gives this analogy for this reality. He imagines uh, this like turning on a light switch. You flick the light switch on, he says, and the, on the wall, and the lights go on. It seems like such a simple thing. Yet behind it is a very complicated process. There are transmission towers, substations, and a dam that was built to hold back the water. The poles in which the wires are strung, a tremendous complexity lies behind the simple act of turning on a light switch. Every time you do it, power surges forth, and it comes only because that complicated process has, gone, or has been gone through. He says this, Every time an individual comes to the place where in quiet he calls out to the Lord, a tremendous process is behind it. There's a darkness and anguish of the mystery of the cross, the birth at Bethlehem, the wonder and miracle of the resurrection, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. All this is the process behind a single individual when he calls out the name of the Lord. All we are to do is to be a willing participant used by God in this complex process. What's our job in this complex process? Well, you may never be the, the guy that stands on a stage, which by the way, in fact, I'm going to be judged more strictly than every single person in this room. That's what the book of James talks about. But each one of you guys has a ministry because you have a sphere of people that you get to connect with that a pastor or someone else will never get to connect with, right? All our job is, is to love and to faithfully share to the people that are closest to us. Go with me to verse 16 and 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it says, faith comes from hearing, but hearing what? And if you follow the verse, it says the words about Christ, which is the Bible, the 66 books of Scripture, right? We jokingly said around here, if you want a word from God, read your Bible. If you want to know what God sounds, sounds like, you want an audible voice from God, read your Bible out loud, right? God, this is the primary way God has chosen to speak to you and I. And so if you're in this room and you want your faith to grow, grow the knowledge of the object of your faith. Let me say it this way. If you are a Christian then the object of your faith is indeed Jesus Christ. If you grow your knowledge of Jesus, your faith will instinctively grow. This is why at Young Adults, we decide that we're going to study books of the Bible here. Why? Because I don't want any of you to come to Young Adults, to come to church, expecting to find God and all you find is me. My sermon illustrations and my stories and things like that. I want you to find God. This is how God has primarily said, this is how you will find me. In the community of believers as we read God's word together. The point is this, that if you know God's word, it makes it a lot easier to know the author. Go with me in verse 18 and 21. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This means a lot of things, but for the sake of time, here's, here's what I want you to understand. When God gives light, he expects you and I to follow its illumination. In other words, I've said this before. When God reveals and shows you something, he expects you to now live with a new understanding because of what that light brings. Here's what this means in the context of what Paul's talking about. The Jews didn't follow the light, but rather they remained in darkness, so they have a greater accountability and responsibility before God. Every single American is in this exact same place. There's only been two countries in human history that have been so similar. That may be three. It would be Israel, Rome, and the current United States of America, where they were originally uh, founded on Judeo-Christian values. 
right? You could make, maybe make the argument for England, but it would for sure be Rome, the United States, and obviously Israel. When God gives light, he expects those to follow its illumination, right? Israel should have known who Jesus was. They had the whole test, Old Testament to, to foreshadow and, and teach them of what the coming king was going to look like, but they rejected it. And so because of that, they have a greater accountability and a greater sense of responsibility before God now. And so tonight, I told you that I wanted to share with you a little bit different than I have in the series um, up until this point. I want to show you what is at stake by not living out these words, by not preaching, by not sharing your faith, by being a coward in many ways of not sharing your faith, holding, holding back in some sense of the way. For me, it all starts off, and you've been around here for a while. Um, you may hear a little bit of the story. On uh, January 11, 2015, um, it was a Sunday night. It was young adults, and uh, Pastor Cody was speaking, and um, I had to leave, and so I went home. And it's about 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. As I get into the door of my house, I realized that my, uh, my dad's already asleep. My dad was, that was kind of odd because he was always up until like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Every night at 11 o'clock, he'd jump in the jacuzzi, and so he was already out. So I asked, I asked my mom, hey, where's dad at? And she said, well, he, he's sick, and he's been kind of throwing up. And I was like, maybe he's got food poisoning or something like that. I go to bed, and uh, all throughout the night, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, I hear my dad getting up and throwing up. So I'm thinking, hey, he's got food poisoning, you know? So um, I get up a little early, and I head into my office. And as I get to my office, I sit down on my desk, and I realize I forgot my computer charger, and my computer's dead. So I realize i got to go back now to my house. Luckily, I live right across the street. So I get in my car, drive to my house. As I get in my front door, my mom is frantic, and she's freaking out. All she's screaming is, your dad says he's dying, your dad says he's dying. And I'm like, what's going on, right? The weirdest thing is, while I was in the office, just about to leave to go back to my house, I was stopped by somebody that I hadn't seen in a few weeks because it was during the Christmas break. And she said, hey, how you doing? And I said, oh, I just got to get my, 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 phone or my, uh, my computer charger. And she goes, I feel like, for some reason, I was supposed to bring this to work today. And I don't know why, but I feel like I'm supposed to give this to you right now. And so she hands me a jar and in it was a little mustard seed, which is actually one of my favorite Bible verses. You have the faith of a mustard seed. You can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. And it's not a physical mountain. It's a mountain of disbelief. It's a miracle that needs to be happened. Well, whatever it is, right? So I was like, that's odd. So I put it in my pocket, and I get my, my way home. Now, fast forward, I'm in my house, and my mom's saying, we need to get out of the hospital. He says he's dying. I'm like, what's going on? She goes, go, go, go help him put his clothes on. So I run into his bedroom, and there I've never seen my dad so weak and depleted of energy. He was... Casper White, and he was trying to do a crunch to get up, but he couldn't. And I ran over to him, and I said, Dad, what's going on? And I grabbed him, brought him over to the side of the bed. And then he said these words. He said, these, I said, Dad, what happened? And he said, I had too much to drink last night. And I was livid. All flashbacks of memory of my dad embarrassing me in front of my friends because he was drunk, or me coming home from school and him already passed it on the couch, whatever. I was just, I had this one memory flashback where I was coming home, skating home from night, uh, it was like 6 or 7 o'clock at night. My dad was in the driveway, passed out in his car with his car on, with his Glock, his gun in his, in his hand. It's all these memories just flashing through my mind. And I just got angry. I said, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. And I said, then die. My mom comes in and says, can you help him put his clothes on? I'm aggressively helping him put his clothes on. Can you help him take, take him to the car? So I, I put his arm around me, and I'm aggressively walking down the hall. He's bumping into things. Picture walls are, pictures are falling off the, the wall. As we get past our, uh, the bathroom, I glance off into the bathroom. I see the bathroom is covered in blood. My mom pulls the car around, and 
they open the door, and I set him in there, and he looks up in a brittle voice, and he says, can you help me put my seatbelt on? I said, figure it out, and I slammed it on him, and they drove off to the hospital. I didn't have the sense to go with him, so I came back to my office. That night, I got a phone call from my mom, or a few hours later, that they had to put him in an incubated coma, and they, what ended up happening is, because he was an alcoholic my entire life, and most of his life, the, the acid in alcohol erodes the esophagus, and so 45 years of drinking alcohol every single day, well, it, it did its job. And so they needed to put him in a coma, and they needed to surgically go in there and, and repair whatever was broken. And they were going to keep him in an incubated coma overnight so he didn't move and tear anything. Great. Call me tomorrow. I'll take you guys to lunch. It's now Tuesday. And um, I'm back in my office. It's about noon. I get a phone call from my mom, and she says, she says my name. She says, Matt. And I don't know if you've ever heard someone that you love just say your name. And it was just the way in which they said your name. You just, you could immediately know what they were about to share with you. And she just said, Matt, as she was crying, she said, they're saying he's not going to make it. And I'm just remembering the last thing I said to my dad was just die. And I slammed the door on his face and said, figure it out. So now I'm sitting in my office and I feel like I'm being suffocated. The walls of my office seem like they're closing in. She says, you need to get to the hospital. And so I jump out of my seat. I, I run downstairs, get into my car, I pick up my twin sister and I make it as fast as I can over to the hospital that he was at. I immediately walk into the hospital. Earlier, I gave my mom that mustard seed. And I said, Mom, can I have the mustard seed? She gives it to me. My dad's on life support at this time, in a coma. I grab the mustard seed. I place it in his hand. And I just said, Dad, I don't know if you can hear me. My whole life, you've been two things. You've been an alcoholic and you've been an atheist. I don't know if this is going to be your last moment here on earth. I don't know if I'm ever going to talk to you again. I don't know if you're going to wake up. I don't know any of this stuff. But in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven but except through me. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 13, it says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, salvation is found in no one else. There's no name given to mankind in which we must and can be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I just begin to pray over him and weep over the reality of that this is actually happening. I asked my mom if, if they had a chapel, and she gave me to a doctor that walked me over to it. And I just got on my hands and my knees, and I was just like, Lord, if these really are my dad's final moments, like, I, I, need, I need him to come to you. Just like the thief did on the cross moments before he was actually killed and his, his life departed from him, like, could you do something in the subconscious of my dad? Could you meet with him? Could you, could, could you do something and intervene? Or could you bring him out of this? That night, I um, slept on the floor of my dad's bed. And I was awoken about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to all these flashing lights, and my dad was coding. I guess his heart was stopping. All these doctors were jumping over me, and I didn't know what to do, so I just grabbed my Bible and went to a corner. And I opened up to the story of Jesus calming the waters. Where, the, where Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the foot of the boat, and the disciples scream out, don't you care? We're about to drown. We've been good to you. Why are you asleep? Why are you not listening to our cries? It's exactly how I felt. And then he comes up, and he calms the entire ocean. And he says, you have little faith. You have mustard seed faith. calms the entire water. And here's what I learned. The peace doesn't come from having calm waters. It comes from having Jesus in your boat. 
this side of heaven, the world's not going to be the way we want it to be. People will get sick. Things will happen. We have a God that is good. Promise you, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we want through this. God works for the good of those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. And the promise in Scripture is verse 29, that he will work all things to conform you to the image of his son, to make you more like Jesus if you allow him to. It's about that time that my dad stabilized, and so I went back to bed for a little bit, 30 minutes or so. I mean, I stayed up for a while. I wake up the next day, and the first words, it's now January 14th, it's a Wednesday. I'm woken by a doctor saying these words. Wow, I can't believe he made it through the night to my mom. A few hours later, the doctor spoke to my family, and they flashed a a flashlight over his eyes, and they realized that his eyes didn't dilate, which meant that he was brain dead. The autonomic system is the last part of the brain that dies. And so they said we had a few choices, and they said that um, we could keep him on life support, and modern medicine is really good at just keeping somebody in this state. He doesn't, he has something that's pushing the blood through his veins. He has something that's pushing oxygen through his lungs. He has something that's, that's cleaning his blood. Um, in every sense of the way, he's no longer there. Um, or we could slowly just start turning off the machines that are keeping him in this suspended state of light and just allow him to pass. So my mom turned over to me and said, is that a, can, Matt, can you make that decision? I went back in the chapel and I just got on my hands and my knees and I was like, Lord, I, I just need some sign. I need something that he's come to know you before I, as his son, make the decision that he's not going to be here maybe anymore. I walk over and my dad's still holding the mustard seed in his hand. So I put my hand on his hand and as a family, we just crowded around him and we told the doctors to start turning off the machines. And one by one, they turned the machines off. And it was one of the most bizarre moments in my entire life. Because here we are, just as a family, surrounding my dad, and he plays different roles in different people's lives that were there that day. And I'm, he's just, we're all just crying. And we're all just looking at this heart monitor, just waiting not to hear it any longer. It's like, beep, beep. Just waiting, waiting for that beep to go away so that we could, we could leave. My mom at this time was holding my dad's face. She was crying, and she was just saying, it's okay, Mark okay, you can go. So my dad passed away on January 14th at 111 in room 111. People ask me all the time, do you believe your dad's in heaven? And the truth is, I don't know. What I do know is that that decision was made by an all-powerful, all-loving, all-just, and good God. And that I know at the end of my dad's life, my heavenly father judged him perfectly and right. What I also know is that that day, there were tears in the father's eyes. Because when anyone dies, there are tears of sadness that we're going to spend eternity away from him, or there are tears of joy that we're going to spend an eternity with him. So you're here today, and you're like, why did I, why did I share this depressing story with you all? That's because you, until the day you die, will make plans for days that you don't have. Each one of you. You, until the day you die, will make plans for days you don't have. And here's what I know. There are some of you here tonight that are not right with God. And if your life was taken from you as rapidly as my dad's was, I won't see you in heaven. And that hurts me. There was one person that can make you right with God. The whole book of Romans is about the righteousness of God. How you, broken, fallen, and sinful person, can become right with a perfect, awesome, and just, and holy God. Romans 10, 13, we said, if whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be Saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. 
says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God had risen him from the dead, that you will be saved. I want to encourage you to think through this. Second reason I want to, I want to share that with you guys today is I don't want you to make the same mistake I made, thinking I had more time with my dad, thinking I had more minutes and hours, days and weeks, months and years with my dad to talk to my dad about Jesus. Here I am as a pastor, and I was a pastor then too, pushing off conversations I should have had with him, thinking that I had more time with him, but I didn't. I know each and every single one of you as this member in your family or friend group that you're a believer, but they aren't. And you'd know that if their life was taken from them tonight, you wouldn't see them in eternity. Don't make the same mistake I made. Let me ask you this question. We learn in Scripture that one of the things God cares most about is lost people. In the book of Luke, it says that Jesus' whole purpose for coming was to seek and save the lost. When was the last time you demonstrated you care about what God cares about? God desperately cares about lost people because he knows what awaits them. As Christians, we become, and as we age, we typically become more focused on our comfort than our calling. The same happens in churches too, and that's why they die. We need not to be a group of people that are, want to be more focused on comfort but calling, and our calling is the people who don't know Jesus Christ because the church is the only organization on the planet that does not exist for its members. Why? Like I said earlier, every member of God's family is a minister because you have a ministry. As we end, we end with a question. How do you and I accomplish this monumental task of inviting people into knowing their Savior? And the answer is really simple. It's one person at a time. None of us will probably change the entire world, but you can change someone's world. You will not be able to reach everyone, but every one of us can reach someone. Every January, I read uh, the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And if you don't know, let me recap it in 10 seconds. Ne Nehemiah ends up being a cupbearer to the king. The king is a rough and harsh man, and the cupbearer's job is to eat all the food, drink all of the wine, and if he doesn't die, he gives it over to the king. And so they have a very close relationship. But the king had absolute and sovereign power. He could kill people at whim if he wanted to that day. God places on Nehemiah's heart that he's supposed to go back to Israel and rebuild the walls of a crumbling Israel to give it a new identity and have its people come back and a plethora of other things. Nehemiah is such a smart man that he knows that he has to go and ask the king for probably $250 million, an army, and thousands of people to go and help rebuild a city that they conquered and then re-give them an army and a plethora of other things. Also, make him the president of that he knows it's a monumental task, and if he just goes up to the king, he for sure is going to be killed. So he fasts and he prays, and then he goes and talks to the king. Can you imagine how different Nehemiah's story would have been if he didn't seek God before he sought his opportunity? The truth is we probably would have never heard of him because most likely he would have been killed. But because he was a godly man and a man of discernment, he sought God and God sowed an opportunity for him at the right time. What's, what's the point of all that? We must talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. We must talk to God about the people that we want to share with before we talk to people. I'm sorry, we must talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. Two weeks before my dad passed away, I heard a message similar to this about inviting people to church, about sharing your faith, having faith-based conversations with people. And so I took it to heart. 
And so it was during the Christmas season, and I was going to, I prayed, and I asked that my dad would come to church with me. My dad hadn't stepped through the doors of a church in 45 years. Yeah, 45 years, 47, I think. And so I, uh, I fasted, and I prayed just that my dad would come, and that whatever the message was going to be, it was going to speak to him in such a way that he could cross the finish line of faith. And so I, um, I eventually built the courage, and I said, Dad, would you come to church with me, and would you sit with me? And my dad was like a hardcore militant atheist. I said, Dad, I'll wash, the, I'll wash your car. I'll be nice to my twin sister. I'll clean up the dog poop. Like, what do I have to do to get you to come to church with me? And he said, I'll go. I was dumbfounded. And so we sat in the auditorium together, and that Sunday at the Christmas service, there was this interesting drama that was being happening on the main stage. And it was the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where they had different actors, and like a drama. And there was this son and the father, and you could see that there was tension in between the father and the son, that something had happened in the past, and the father, uh, the son felt like he was no longer welcomed in the father's house, because of the, he had a sinless as long as a CVS receipt. We don't know, but there was something that was going on. And so what ends up happening is, throughout the drama, you see that the son wants to come up to the door. There's this big red door on, on the stage, and it's symbolic for being welcomed back into the family. In the stage, there was this big wooden table, and there was a family that was just enjoying each other's presence, being a part of the family, and eating dinner together. The son finally builds up the courage to walk up, and he's about to knock, and he's like, ah, and then he knocks. And so the father gets up, and he walks over, opens the door frame, and there's this moment between the father, who in the story is representing God, and the son representing all of us. And he has so much shame in his eyes, and the father has a smile on his face, and you don't know what's going to happen. The father goes to the door frame, grabs his son, drags him through by the hand, and brings him down. Says, I don't want to know about your past. I don't care to know about your past. I'm just excited that you decided to knock on the door to let you to come home by hand. Two weeks later, my dad passed away. And I was thankful that, one, a pastor gave me this message, and two, that I had the conviction and courage that I had no idea it was going to be at stake. I mentioned in that chapel that I continued to ask God for signs. I'm a pretty blind person. I have some friends close to me that shared some stuff with me recently um, that they've been trying to tell me for a while now, and I'm blind. It took my wife one second to realize what they were trying to tell me. So God, God I think, has to <laughs> convince me of speaking to me as well. I kept asking God, I need some type of sign. It, it's miserable to go on knowing that you lost somebody that you could have been more, had more conviction of sharing your faith with. So I mentioned that my dad passed away in room 111 at 111. The hospital address was 1111, which happens to be my parents' anniversary, November 11th. Two years later, I'm at lunch with my wife, and we're talking about this story, about my dad and all of that. And randomly, as I'm walking out of the restaurant, I get a phone call from my mom, and she goes, Matt, you're not going to believe what just came in the mail. I was like, what came in the mail? And she said, the insurance bill, the insurance paid for your dad to be in the hospital, do you want to know how much it came out to? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, what? what? She said, it came out to exactly $111,000. A life verse of mine has always been Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things that are not seen. I hope. I'm gonna get, I'm, when I pass away, I'm going to get to see my dad in heaven. Do I know that for certain? No. Why? Because this side of heaven, I never heard him confess that Jesus is Lord, which I believe is the only way to get to heaven. But here's what I do know. With God, all things are possible. And with God, all people have the possibility of being reached. 
And so tonight as we end, here's my question. Who's your one? Who's the one person in your life that you're going to persistently be praying for, and then you're actually going to have a faith-based conversation with this week? Invite them to come to young adults if they're a young adult, or you'll hear a little bit later about something we have coming next week. But what I want you to do is I want you to reach up towards God before you reach out to people. In other words, I want you to seek God before you seize your opportunity. That's what I want you guys to talk about in your guys' discussion groups today. And so I'm going to give you guys 20 or so minutes to do that. If you put your arm around somebody, I'll pray for you guys, and then we'll go on to the next thing. Father, I, uh, I thank you that you were, you were a God that saves. You have not left us in depravity or left us far from you. But Scripture says that you are as close as this calling on you. What I know, God, that there are people in my life and there are people in the lives of my friends here, God, that are far from you. I believe that you have divinely orchestrated us and placed us in very specific places to have conversations with people about bringing them, God, to you. Father, would you give us a sense of conviction and courage, Lord God, this week to have some conversations with people that we care about. Lord God, we love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.